0: Do I agree with the fact that conceptually there are things that are very difficult to track that contribute to the performance and success of a company? Do I think you should build brand? Yes. Do I think you should do things like podcast and help build that network to create that chatter amongst your customers to where someone says demand generation, they start thinking of MRP? Absolutely. Right. Do I think it should be quantified into a term like dark social to try to sell? No.
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. My name is Tom Hunt, your host, and today we're joined by Chris Rack, who is the CEO of MRP, a veteran, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, salesperson that also has deep understanding and deep expertise within the B2B marketing space because that's what he's been selling for, I think, 16 years. So in this episode, we jump into Chris's controversial, let's say, This, Chris, I think is like the anti Chris Walker, I would say they have almost opposite opinions. So we dig into actually why dark social may not be that valuable or maybe that it's just a bit of a mirage. And then we also dig into the fact that content syndication can actually be the cheapest possible lead source that you could use as a B2B marketer right now. So First, let's give a quick shout out to Fame, who are the producers of the show, also in my business. If you're a B2B business and you want to start and grow an audience through a podcast, then go to fame.so, request a proposal, say you heard of us from Confessions of a B2B Marketer. And then I will personally jump on a call with you to talk strategy. Let's jump into that discussion with Chris now. Chris, welcome to the show. Awesome. Good to have me. Thanks, Tom. I have spent a bit of time in the world of marketing, and what I have found is that people that can sell often make A, great marketers, but be better leaders. Would you agree with my theory?
0: Yes. And I guess you would say, I'll argue that it depends on the type of seller that there are, right? I believe that there are two, and most people would consider selling, you know, there's that science versus art. And really what they're saying in that is that there are process oriented sellers and that there are natural talent oriented sellers, right? There are humans in the world who are just great at reading people, reading body language, reading, right, and they know they and they have a general feel of where to take discussions based on that those instincts, right? Those types of sellers don't generally make great leaders because they don't know how to teach what they do instinctively. A process-oriented seller, right? Myself, because I have no natural abilities whatsoever, but I'm very machine-like in the processes that I've built to attack a go-to-market. So I naturally float into leadership because leadership is, again, generally very process-oriented as well. Whether you're looking at finance, whether you're looking at legal, whether you're looking at operations, all of the different segments of being a CEO, all of them usually come down to, if you have good processes that people buy into and believe,
1: you can go far. Because this was going to be my next question to you, with which you think that you are, but you're saying that you don't necessarily have this kind of natural ability, but you're like the process guy and you learned, I guess, through running that process and through practice.
0: I'm fairly introverted, so I don't do well in very large groups, right? You know, imagine like going into a cocktail hour, you know, small groups of five standing around tables, having little conversations where you have to network and kind of like those, that's actually like my personal health right? Exhaust me. I'm not good at it. It's not where I'm comfortable. Where I'm most comfortable is kind of, in some cases, behind a camera, right? Because that's kind of my natural, there's a natural wall there that I can feel safe on. But yeah, I'm definitely the latter. I'm process and and execution-oriented. And again, I've, I've been doing this long enough in my space that I have a general feel from a selling perspective, but that only comes from tens of thousands of repetition, right? And not any natural ability that I had going into it.
1: And so the the context for the audience, obviously, here is that we have Chris, who's got like deep sales experience, but is also now leading a marketing firm. And so we're going to dig into a like more about the revenue function and selling and then pick out some of Chris's opinions that I know he has about the state of B2B. So, Chris, how does that sound like for you for the interview? Sounds amazing. So the other thing we also need to know about Chris is that you, I believe, are either very passionate or very good or both at chess. And so my first question is, why do we think that go to markets is like playing the game of chess?
0: So, yeah, I played chess as a very young man. I was taught, I was lucky enough that my fourth grade teacher was a, a very highly ranked master level player in the United States at the time. And for those who don't know about chess, there are different ranks based on your tournament scores across, right? So master is the second highest level beneath what they call a grandmaster, right? And there's you know, less than a hundred grandmasters, I believe right now, currently playing. So I was fortunate enough to, to be taught by a very skilled and high level chess player. And I played from fourth grade till I was probably just in high school. to when I kind of took a break, because obviously chess isn't very cool when you're in high school. So I've picked it back up in my adult life. I play a lot of online, more speed chess, that, but to answer your question, chess, obviously there's definitive rules to how pieces move, right? Which kind of fits into a almost traditional go-to-market vibe, right? There are there are rules that you should follow, but there are varied strategies at the different parts of the game, the beginning, the middle, and the end, right? That are very scripted, right? And a lot of times when you're playing the game, it depends, you know, you pick which strategy you're going to use based on the type of player that you're playing, the amount of time that you have in the game, right? There are certain criteria that you evaluate to where you will start your scripted. So most at a very high level of chess, most of the first 15 to 20 moves are fairly scripted based on you know, what I'm going to do and what I know that person is going to do based on what I'm going to do. Right. And then from there it becomes feel, right? And there's usually one or two moves that changes the course of the game and opens it up to more of that. Right. So similar with go to market, there are you know several different, almost scripted go-to-market motions, right? And the first thing you have to decipher when you're looking at your revenue team is which go-to-market motion is best fit for where we are, who I'm playing, and how much time I have, and all those factors. And then you have to execute it to the point where, you know, first you execute the basics flawlessly, and then you'll reach a pivot point on when you make it your own. When you take that go-to-market to the next level by adding your own special experience or sauce. So that is that's how I correlate it, right? And again, chess is a very long game, right? You have to be and sometimes your first five moves, you're thinking about your last five moves. And
1: yeah, I can go to market. I would think it's very much like that as well. It's really, really great analogy. I'm now going to take that into my arsenal when you say take that. It would be great to know if possible, and maybe MRP is the best example to give, but like how you went through that, like you joined, I think you joined MRP right, as CEO.
0: I did. I joined six, about six months ago as CEO. Yes.
1: Got it. And so... I guess maybe you went through this process to review the GTM strategy and then set something in place what's right for you now. Like, if you did that, I would love to just, whatever you can share, share more about the actual process.
0: Yeah, I mean, your first, obviously I was brought in to realign the go-to-market given that's where my history tends to sit, right? That's where I specialize. You know, you don't bring guys like me into to work on corporate organizational structure of entities and tax law and things of that nature, right? There are definitely CEOs for that and there's a time to do that, but I'm not one of them and that's not where we are, right? So go-to-market for me really came down to figuring out exactly where how we want to do it, right? I have a generally targeted TAM, right? I don't have an infinitely large TAM. So I knew inbound was probably not the road to go, but I probably knew I knew that going in, given my experience in my industry anyway, right? So I figure out how do we execute an outbound motion, but the world is changing a lot, right? And you can no longer throw bodies at outbound, right? So we look to be really defined. And where we focused a lot of our time first is how to take our product suite and really repackage it to best solve a very unique. Like this unique problem for our buyers, right? I mean, my buyers are all looking for the same thing. They want the best leads for the best cost, right? To drive the best ROI. In my motion, it's not a problem solution outbound motion, right? This isn't a painkiller because everybody has the same pain, and there's no perfect way to solve for it, right? So, I'm in a very competitive space as well. So I knew that I had to build a product suite that didn't necessarily compete with some of the larger players showcased our differentiation, right? So where we've attacked in the first six months is what can we build or do to be different in a space where there's a lot of people who look at the same.
1: Interesting. So you're almost taking a step back and be like, okay, how can we package up what we have differently in a way that's going to make the go-to-market approach easier?
0: Yeah. A lot of, in my space, right, most customers use multiple vendors in their marketing mix, right? And i found, especially in tighter times, tighter economic times, which we're entering, the customer will buy the best or the perceived best. There's a couple of vendors that usually battle that out. Then the customer will likely buy the cheapest because you want to maximize your return. And I'm not going to be the cheapest, right? So the third person that's likely going to make the plan is the different, the player who brings something that the other two vendors don't be. So my goal was to do everything that we possibly can to solve for the different and give demand marketers a solution product suite that doesn't look like everyone else to give them an opportunity to do something different in their plans as they approach the new, not only past six months, but the new year.
1: Now, for anybody wondering, we'll link to MRP below so you can see what exactly it is that Chris is selling and how they're positioning it differently. Moving on now, I believe you have some thoughts on the CRO role. So Chief Revenue Officer, it's a role that you've had previously. I would love to know like, what are your thoughts are on that role? Do we think we need that role? And if yes, what type of person is the best to be in that role?
0: So the role and my frustration with the role historically is that it's become a glorified sales leader title for an egomaniac, right? Your head of sales is now consistently pushing to be the CRO. And the original concept for the CRO role was a person at the top of the revenue organization who could make decisions and align both the marketing, customer experience, and selling organizations, right? Right. And in that function, it's a great role, and every company should have it. The problem is that there's not many humans who can do it. There's very few humans who can speak. Customer experience, outbound sales, dealing with sales headcount, and also figure out how to best manage marketing campaigns, field marketing events, brand, you know all of that, right? So it's a very... What people quickly found is that there just aren't enough humans to do the role, right? And then you have usually a glorified marketer who gets the CRO role who struggles with sales or a glorified seller who struggles with marketing, right? And then you might as well just have what you used to have. So when to use the CRO role? You need a CRO role if your leader and your your top executive, as in probably the CEO or president or whoever that is, is either finance or engineering-minded. If your head of your company is an engineer or a product leader who knows the trenches of technology, product, and engineering, you likely need a CRO to just settle the battles between sales and marketing alignment. If you have a financially driven executive, CEO, et cetera, the CFO who moves up there, again, you're going to need that same CRO role to just settle the battles between sales, marketing, and customer experience. If you have a CEO who is go-to-market minded, who spent most of their career at one of those functions, then you likely don't need a CRO because the CEO can tackle those battles that a CRO would normally do. So, I mean, in my organization, it's fairly unlikely that I'll have a CRO. I'll have a CMO and I'll probably have a CSO, right? And one person will be responsible for marketing and one will be responsible for sales. And I'm the tiebreaker, right? I don't need an alignment tiebreaker because my job as an executive who knows go to market will be to make sure that my, C,
1: my CMO and the CSO are running in the right direction. And if they're not, I have to fix it. So it's really an alignment function and if the CEO has the skill set the experience so they can take on that alignment of those functions.
0: It is and that's what it was designed to do it did it really well originally but again it lost it's just lost its way it became like I'm the head of sales I should be the CRO because it's a C-level position and everybody else is doing it and I want it right and even when I took the CRO at my previous company right I was really just a VP of sales but if somebody was going to give me a big fancy C-level title I was like sure I ended up developing my skills on the marketing side of the house because we were a small bootstrap company that didn't have a big budget to drive into it. So I've learned a lot of that functions. Plus I sell to marketers, right? Who do demand and go to market. So my brain is necessarily wired to be able to execute the marketing side of the house because I hear so much about how it's done across my customers. So, but yeah, it's, I'm quite passionate about it because it's one of those things that just bugs me when you have a CRO and it's just a complete obvious sales leader. That doesn't understand or care about any other function outside of that. And everybody just struggles with the big, broody sales leader who just pushes, I need more sales-ready leads
1: on everybody in the world like sales-ready leads just magically fall off the trees. So got a couple more words or concepts in B2B that hopefully might bug you as well. The term dark social, what are your feelings about that?
0: Oh, for me that's gonna run that will probably get me in trouble with all the influencery types on LinkedIn, right? I mean, I think I mean dark social was a term created by vendors to be able to cover the fact that their products weren't giving return on investment for the spent. That's all it ever was. To think that any marketer can roll up to their CEO, spend 50 to 70 K on a platform plus multiple things on top of it. And when the CEO asks for The return on investment to tell their executive, don't worry about it, it's dark social, it's there, if you build it, it will come, right, is just a ridiculous concept. Do I agree with the fact that conceptually there are things that are very difficult to track that contribute to the performance and success of a company? Do I think you should build brand? Yes. Do I think you should do things like podcasts? And help build that network to create that chatter amongst your customers to where someone says demand generation, they start thinking of MRP. Absolutely. Right. Do I think it should be quantified into a term like dark social to try to sell? No. So again, it's insanity. I've worked on both, I've been on the marketing and selling side presenting to a CEO, and I've been a CEO, right? And to think that somebody can try to show me an ROI for spend and be like, hey, don't worry about it because there's this dark social thing happening over here and we're covered. We're getting ROI, I promise you. Next one, content syndication. So I'm biased, right? I've sold third-party driven content syndication solutions for 17 years. So yes, I will let your audience know that I am biased to the fact that content syndication is a solution that my team here sells at MRP and one that I've sold since 2006, right? And I can tell you why I think content syndication works right? Because from a cost per acquisition standpoint, over the long term, acquiring targeted ICP leads into your marketable database and nurturing them into down funnel leads over a period of eight to 12 months, your cost per acquisition with syndication, if your product has an ACB of over 25K, it's almost impossible to not show return on investment, no matter what the conversion rate is, right? I can mathematically drive you a significant return on investment with even a 1% conversion of lead to opportunity and being Again, and I've seen that equation done for 17 years. I had customers who were buying content syndication leads in 2007, who are still buying them in 2025 because they're still showing ROI on the product or solution. Is it exciting? No. Is it sexy? No. Is it dark social and all the other fancy Wonderful things that folks like Chris Walker like to talk about in his podcast? No, right? But if you do it well and you allow your executive team to know that we're playing the long game here and you set expectations well, there is no better cost per acquisition, new client acquisition standpoint in the market. It's also infinitely attributable. I generated five leads from this company. Here's their name. And that company bought X dollars, X later. You could connect the dots in Salesforce, HubSpot, or whatever CRM you use without any additional tools, without a piece of technology that has to track attribution, without links and pixels and UTMs and all of those things that end up driving crazy attribution stories, right? And that's why syndication has worked for almost almost 20 years. And I believe that's why it will work for the next 20 years.
1: Just to clarify what it means there, so a company creates a piece of content and then gives it to another company to promote to their audience and then to get the content, the audience member has to give us their email address, they get the content and then we nurture them over years in some cases and then ultimately they buy from us, right? That's what we mean. Correct. That would be correct,
0: right? You can syndicate your own content, right? Across pay-per-click and paid search and things of that nature. Your costs are generally higher because driving traffic to that content on your site is not just expensive, but getting more expensive. You can do some syndication of content across social channels, but again, your average cost per lead coming in for that type of syndication across social is 180 to 200, generally, if you're doing it well. So, by working with vendors who have the mechanisms to scale your content across a very large audience and do it at very solid pricing, at you know, in some cases, 25 to $40 per lead, like the mathematics of getting that opt in data into your data set and nurturing them down the line. Again, if I could, you could give me almost any conversion rate and any ACV above 25k and
1: I could mathematically show you return on investment over time. This deals with the vendors, are they like fixed price? Like you pay them a thousand dollars and they promote your piece of content to their email list or do you agree a cost per lead typically or is it a mix of both?
0: It's an agreed on cost per lead, minimum lead commitment over time frame. So for me, most of my customers are about a 1,000 leads a quarter at anywhere between 35 to 55 per lead, depending on the different types of criteria and filters. We're doing a lot of work with ABM lists right now where customers have a targeted list of accounts that we could pull those leads from. We also have our own signals or intent data that we're able to
1: prioritize ABM lists and, or even build ABM lists to generate leads from as well, too. It makes total sense. Let's do a hard switch up to a question. Why should every employee spend a day cold calling?
0: I mean, I think you don't truly understand how difficult it is to sell until you're thrown into that instance for even a short amount of time, right? It's very easy to sit in in an ivory tower across any facet of the business, finance, legal, anything. You're like, why can't sales hit their goals? Why are we not performing, right? I don't understand. Those people are compensated really high. They should be crushing their goals. It's really difficult. Sitting in a chair for eight hours a day And again, in some cases, making 80 calls to connect with two people, sending 40 to 50 really customized emails to get a response from maybe one of them. Given the amount of automation and AI that's hit the space in the past two years, it's made the job of a seller, especially on the prospecting side, 100x more difficult. Because really what you've done is given a lot of small teams spam cannons. And I think we've already started to see it with Google And Yahoo's starting to add some restrictions to their spam filtering and settings. But I do believe that our market will go, the sales acceleration market will go very much the same way the marketing automation market went in the early 2000s, right? When Marketo and Eloqua and all those companies were battling it out to grow the marketing automation space, there were lots of companies abusing the platforms and turning them into high-volume spam cannons. And at that time... Aliqua and Marketos and the very the reputable vendors in the space who led the space said, Hey, we're going to change our terms of service. We're going to require you to only put opt-in data into our systems. And if we find out that you're not, we'll shut you down. And they did. I think that will happen with the sales acceleration space very close, very, really very soon. I think outreaches, sales lofts, the prominent vendors in the space who gongs who control the large sale of market share, they will require the data going into their systems to be opt-in because they can't, again they either end up getting their IPs shut down from just high volumes of sending through their IPs to that point. Or from a reputation standpoint, customers who try to push the envelope will get shut down. They'll blame them as the vendor and it won't become the customer's fault, it'll become the vendor's fault. So I, I do believe you'll see within the next, again, I'm not a predictor of the future, but three to six months, the key players in the sales automation
1: space requiring data going into their systems to be opted. When was the last time you, you spent a day cold calling?
0: So I I prospect at least an hour a day, right? I don't do it in bulk for an entire day, but I spend at least an hour a day either sending emails, right, or calling into people. So I'm interesting in the fact that I do believe that the only way for me to really be able to do my job well is to be as directly connected to the customer as possible. So I spend an hour of my day, again, prospecting into accounts, right? I mean, sometimes I prospect by inviting people to join my podcast, right? Not always cold calling and asking for a meeting. Sometimes I'll connect with other executives to see if we have connections. We have other, you know, so it's not pure cold calling or cold emailing, although I do some of that, but I also join and or listen to through our call recording. My goal for myself is a minimum of three calls a week. I'm directly listening, either listening to a customer call where my team is pitching it, or I'm joining the call and talking to the customer directly. I am minimum three calls a week across my sales team.
1: Yeah, that's got to keep you sharp, right? If you're personally doing this stuff. And then at the same time, it must really give the sales function like motivation to see you like in the trenches with them.
0: Yes and no, it does, right? But it also makes it difficult to... Like, there's really nowhere to hide because I
1: know all the intricacies of how the pitch
0: should look, right? I know, again, I know how our processes should be executed. I know all of the very finite details. Whereas, again, most CEOs wouldn't get that deep into it. They would just ask for their report on how the sales team is doing, and the VP of sales would paint a pretty picture and be able to kind of keep on doing what they're doing, right? So, it's good in the fact that I mean, I got a lot of customers love having the involvement of an executive on their campaign because generally, if I'm involved, there's a, a pretty high propensity that things are going to be executed or go well because I've attached my name to it. So customers really enjoy it. The sellers like that aspect of it, but it's also challenging. And it's challenging for my SVP of sales too, who, again, it's hard to, sometimes the line is blurred, right? And I have to turn my CRO hat off a bit and take a step back and let that culture develop for itself under his leadership versus that, right? So that's the probably the most difficult part, but it's also I mean, I just enjoy it. And again, I can't, I just can't fathom having to make a product decision about the direction of a product or about a new feature or about something without actually talking to customers about it. And it happens so frequently. There's a group of people who sit in rooms who haven't spoken to a customer in in some cases years, who are making substantial decisions about the direction of a product or a company. And it baffles me that how that can happen. When maybe one of those five people has spoken to a customer in that, in again, in some cases a very long time. There's a lot of even CRO or SVP level sales executives who don't join a lot of calls either, who are very hierarchical and data analysis and all of that. So, I mean, again, if you are a leader and you have aspirate, my personal take is if you have aspirations to be an executive at a company. Like you should familiarize yourself with the selling motion and dive right in. Right. Join calls, listen to calls, ask about it. Cause that's, you can have no, almost no greater impact on a business outside of creating a culture of winning and one that people love being a part of something and all those parts of it. But there's no more long term slash immediate impact on a business than being able to impact their selling motion in a short amount of time. Cause it's again, it's also directly attributable. I fixed this and we sold more. And usually boards and other executives really like that stuff.
1: There we go. There's been some raw go-to-market them here, Chris. We're going to link, obviously, to MRP, your LinkedIn, your podcast. Anything else we should be linking to below? No, I think
0: that's really good. That's really it. You know, I'm happy to have any demand-gen marketers looking who enjoys being on podcasts, right? We do Beat a Boring, right? Where we dive in each episode and we talk to a marketer about a campaign that they've run over their career that was not boring, right? Um, I've always found that My best inspiration for campaigns and sales motions and ideas tends to come from other people's ideas and inspiration. So my goal with the podcast was to give marketers a place to go and listen to other stories about other campaigns and other marketers' ideas that hopefully they can fuel, uh, maybe even steal or adopt some of them for themselves, but maybe tweak them or fuel new ideas to drive creative go-to-market paths in what will be a very challenging economy again in 2024, right? Sales and marketing is going to be harder in the next 12 months as it has been than it has been in the past five years. And there's a lot of sellers and marketers, folks earlier in their career, who've never experienced what it was like before 2018 and 19 and 20, right? And it's different. It's going to be very shocking to a large generation of sellers who've never experienced selling in a market that isn't fueled by a whole bunch of free cash, right? So those of us who've been there know what we're getting into. So my goal has been to try to shout from as many rooftops as I can, you know, how challenging it will be in in sales and marketing. But again, that's not, people always say like, when's it going to go back to, when's it going to go back? It's not. Like what we have here is probably the downside of it, right? But this is sales. There's a reason that sellers and marketers at a high level are compensated better than almost anybody in the company. Is what we do is really hard. And there's not many humans who could do it at a high level. And Unfortunately, from 2018 to 2022, it became a lot easier for the average human to do it at a decently high level. Those humans are now finding out how reality sits, and it's really striking a chord. So you'll see more of that over the next 12 to 18, but the market will turn up eventually. It won't be 100 unicorns a year, good, for a while, right? But you'll start to see more investment coming back into go-to-market and marketing and, and growth again versus the retractions that have been the immediate pullback. I spend
1: a lot of time thinking about podcast positioning and what you have there is definitely something that is engaging. It has an edge, which is what we like to see. So it's the thing that our listeners are going to tell their friends about one non-boring B2B marketing strategy per episode. So we'll link to that below. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you. It's fun. All right, team, what do we think about that one? You might have heard I was chuckling along to myself with a really strong opinion from Chris, of which I mainly do agree with. So shout out Chris for coming on. Also a massive shout out to Fame.so. They're the producers of this show. If you're a B2B company and you want to start a podcast, which we, of course, highly recommend, please go to Fame.so, request a proposal, and hopefully we can jump on a call and we can strategize. a podcast for your b2b brand of course a massive shout out and thank you to you for listening to this 100th episode of confessions of the b2b market there's going to be big big things big changes coming for the show in the coming months i did a poll on linkedin considering a slight rebrand of the pod but we'll get into that in future episodes so i want to say a massive thank you to you for listening because this show has been an absolute awesome ride and journey for myself someone asked me the other day what the biggest benefit of having a podcast was and it isn't necessarily like the leads or the partnerships or the relationships or the downloads it's more actually the learnings and so this 100 episodes have enabled me to really push my knowledge forward in my understanding of the b2b marketing and demand generation space so it's been an absolute pleasure so of course thank you for listening